Welcome to the Scale and Power podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to share with you how to scale a SaaS business from 2 million to 100 million ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Hanno Renner, CEO at Personio. Hanno, it's, it's a really pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Awesome. So let's get to know a little bit more about yourself and Personio and uh, how did you when start uh, Personio and how was your life a little bit behind uh, when you had the idea to, to pursue this uh, startup and scaling up journey nowadays? Yeah, happy to give a bit of an introduction. Um, yeah, so first of all about myself, uh, I'm an yeah. industrial engineer by training, uh, studied uh, different places around the world, but, but mainly also in Munich, um, in uh, New York and New Zealand. And uh, doing that uh, and sort of throughout the studies, uh, worked on different, different topics, but especially towards the end of my studies, did a technology management degree, which was a very interdisciplinary program where you worked with a lot of different people from different backgrounds on uh, okay. interesting topics and challenges. And I really enjoyed that part of my studies because it was working with smart people that were motivated to do something. We didn't get paid for it, but everyone is excited to do something. And it was a very entrepreneurial program. So also in the past, while it's not an incubator, a lot of companies has been founded of this program called CDTM in Munich. And um, this uh, working in that program motivated me to found a startup myself because I wanted to replicate exactly that experience I had there with working with these smart and motivated people and building a company where you had that feeling and where you could do those things right. as well. So there was the one motivation of building a great company to do, do something like that, but to also, yeah. of course, solve a problem uh, which actually users and, and people have in their daily life uh, and not just searching for something where you can make money with, but rather where there's really something that's unsolved that can be solved with technology. And there we came across HR eventually, which uh, mm -hmm. uh, through one of my friends uh, who was a CTO at a, at a different company, uh, they were managing as many companies around with 100 people, uh, all their people data in Excel sheets and with, mm -hmm. with analog files and uh, recognized okay. all the challenges that came with that. And hence, we yeah, tried to solve that for them. Got it. And that's how Personio uh, started. Yeah, exactly. That was how we came up. Uh, he actually came up with the idea. We then picked it up and, and worked uh, with the initial customers. We were lucky enough to quite early on had paying customers to, uh, that, that were for our early product uh, actually being willing to pay for it. We learned a lot from them. We learned a lot more about the market and also discovered that uh, SME HR is a, uh, is a very unsolved and undigitized problem, especially in Europe. And we wanted to build uh, you know, a category leaser for that for that market and started with just bringing this Excel sheets into the cloud and making it accessible by multiple people, given that HR data is a very collaborative uh, topic, but then from there expanded uh, and digitized the entire value chain of HR, starting from recruiting, managing people, paying people and developing people, and hence develop what we today call the HR operating system. God, it's, that's, that's an awesome uh, tagline to start with. And give us a little bit more context about um, the growth stage uh, where Personio is in. So what is the ad count kind of uh, interval of revenues? Uh, uh, what was the last funding uh, round? Some of the investors that you have in, in your, uh, that are backing Personio at this stage. So a little bit of, of context on, on the scaling up journey uh, so far. Yeah, sure. Happy to give 
give a bit of an uh, idea. So uh, we started the company in late 2015, uh, where then bootstrapped initially based on revenues from our initial customers, grew to a team of around 10 people and uh, 30 paying customers uh, at a time when we raised our first seed round um, and have since uh, raised uh, a little bit over 50 million, I think 54 million in, um, in investment uh, through three rounds. Uh, our mm -hmm. core investors are Global Founders Capital, Index Ventures, and Northone, uh, awesome. which uh, which have supported us uh, with with money, mm -hmm. but also their their support along the journey. Since we've grown to a team of slightly over 300 people, with 308 as of today, um, and uh, but most importantly, of course, are now serving close to 2,000 HR teams in their daily life, uh, which provides us uh, uh, yeah double digit ARR numbers. So. Uh, a while ago, we've, we've hit the 10 million ARR milestone and have since uh, been continuing to grow rapidly um, and are in the, in the teens now. Congratulations. This is a very difficult uh, one to, to get there. And maybe let's let's start uh, there before going to people and how your role evolves and how you build your leadership team. So let's start there about nowadays there is a lot of pressure about kind of following the triple two double three pattern so companies who get to two million error then they go to six million and then 18 million and then from there double three times 36 72 144 uh, this is one of the famous posts of um, Agram, one of the investors of battery ventures and so wh what do you think about this pressure of being able to double and triple it, it seems that you were fortunate enough of being one of the few outliers uh, in in the tech ecosystem to to do it uh, but is this a requirement, something that we need to do if we want to scale a company, or there are different paths to, to get to the 100 million error? I mean, uh, there's, I, I first of all really also like that that post uh, that was also published back uh, from Battery Ventures and um, also that gives quite some guidance on, on how you uh, can grow in order mm -hmm. to become a public company. Another post I really like um, is uh, from Rory of Scale Venture Partner called yeah. the Mendoza line of SaaS, uh, which also is a similar concept. I think overall, uh, the importance of these concepts is they give us guidance uh, on how, if you want to become a publicly listed uh, independent SaaS company, how fast do you have to grow to get there? Because that's uh, the companies they've, they've been looking at. Um, and I guess uh, if, if that's your ambition, and, and certainly for us, this is by becoming a category leader for Europe, um, this is the path you, you sort of have to follow and try to 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 get to the, those kind of growth levels because the, only those will get you fast enough to a seasonal um, company that that you will really then remain independent and are able to continue to grow and that's what we're trying to do nevertheless uh, one there's a post from, from christopher Jans about that as well that shows that there's been some companies that grown slower that, uh, there too they might right. not be then the public outliers uh, then but also there's a, a ton of I think good and solid companies that just grow slower to a different size. And I think it depends a lot on the ambition, but also on your market you're tackling, where not every market is deep enough uh, and, and not every company, therefore, is, is set up to to become such a company because there's sometimes companies grow really fast in the early days and then they level right. off at, at 10 or 20 million ARR. And, and therefore, I think it's, uh, it's also naive to think that any company uh, should try to, to achieve these kind of growth rates. 
Very good points. And, and then let's come to this transition from the founding team to the leadership team and how your role as the CEO evolves from one stage to another. Especially at this stage, you are with 388 people. Uh, you said it is starting in 2015, so which means a lot of transformation almost every single quarter, and at least in the last two years, it might be a little bit crazy uh, to change the way you behave, the way you think, the the way you are a CEO, because a CEO of 100 people or 150, 200, 300 people, or even 500, uh, maybe in, in the upcoming uh, years, uh, it, might, it might be very different. And it's very hard to transform yourself so uh, so fast uh, as the company is also bringing you so many new uh, and uh, exciting problems to solve. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, uh, first of all, just to correct, we're, we're 308, not 388 people right now. Um, but but uh, but still, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, probably in in a few months will be 388 and in, in, a, in, a, in a year I expect us to be around 600. Um, but nevertheless, I think you're fully, awesome. uh, you're nailed, nailed the point of this cha constantly changing role. I actually have been recently uh, invited to give a talk uh, at an event exactly about that topic on the changing role of a founder in fast growth. And per se, like one of the takeaways from me there, um, when thinking about this, again, reflecting, preparing the talk, but also uh, when, when presenting that, yeah. is that for like, of course, you name yourself CEO in the very beginning, because that's uh, what you do as a founder. But for mm -hmm. a very long time, you don't do anything that's really CEO kind of work, because CEO provides guidance to the company, uh, defines the strategy. Um, I mean, you do, of course, investor pitches and external representation, which you might do with them earlier, but a lot of things that is actually CEO work, you don't really do or you, don't, you shouldn't even spend a lot of time on because uh, early on there's, there's other things that are much more important, like you're being the first salespeople uh, person, you're being maybe the accountant because that's, that's, there's no one there to do that. And then eventually right. as the first team grows, you develop into team leads of different areas uh, and you're building up different teams um, and then you hire middle management and then only eventually I think probably half a year ago to a year ago um, we, we for the first time had this full executive team staff which reports into me and and since there's more and more uh, roles that I do as a CEO but before there are things also when you move into a new office that you have to organize the toilet paper because just, it's not a process that's organized yet. And if, it's a, if this is the problem, of, the biggest problem of the company right now, then you as a CEO, a CEO or as a founder, you, you right. solve it. Uh, right. And therefore there's certainly <laughs> a lot of change. But yeah, you're right. I think with, with each phase and uh, which sort of any step function in um, employee headcount growth, the requirements towards you and your role shift. And uh, I think you have to be really comfortable with that chain. You have to really enjoy this kind of, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uncertainty uh, you're constantly in and this, this ability. I often give the, the reference towards to being thrown into cold water, but then uh, you used to trying to tread water but, and, and the water never gets warm because constantly, when, <laughs> as soon as you're, you feel comfortable right. in the CEO of a hundred people business, your company is 200 people. And by the time you figured out how to run a 200 people business, you might be 400. And therefore, um, yeah, you have to be comfortable with that, that kind of change and enjoy it, um, but also talk to a lot of people and, and, and learn from them. Yeah, and something that is really, really difficult and part of the job of the CEO is really, as you said, setting up the vision, having crystal clear vision, being able to communicate 
to the markets and to all the entire organization and also setting up the team to execute uh, that vision uh, without doing anything and letting them as the experts in their areas to go into that direction. And of course, the kind of people that you also lead in the beginning and, and nowadays uh, have very different profiles. So it's, it's very easy at this stage of the company to start to have very strong leaders uh, and your leadership style needs to be a little bit different. And uh, I like to kind of say that it's kind of the shark style nowadays. And in order to be able to deal with those strong personalities that are really important for the company, but being able to have them working together in the same direction. So sometimes I like to compare it with soccer. So when we have the Galatics all together in a, in a, in a, in a soccer team, uh, or it's, it's very difficult to have them working together because their egos are super, super strong. So long story short um, is um, how, how, how did you need to, to uh, how did you move, uh, change your leadership style um, from 100 people to 300 people uh, nowadays? And how did you build your leadership team uh, in terms of structure? Yeah, so I think it starts a bit earlier from what you mentioned in regards to, to the, the vision and strategy, which is something which you constantly, especially internally, I think even more than, than externally, have to communicate and reiterate and actually on a weekly basis uh, talk to everyone in the company on exactly the same three points. This is our core purpose, this is the reason we exist, this is our strategic vision, this is how we want to execute this, and this is our BHAC, this is what we want to become. And that I, these three slides are the first three slides I talk about on every uh, on every single all team every Friday afternoon. Um, that, that said, I th uh, and I think then once you've defined that and done that quite early on, you of course have to build an organization around that that can execute on that. And I think before you need the leaders for that, you first have to structure the organization. And we were lucky enough that we had, uh, when we were quite early, um, able to have uh, uh, angel investors that had gone through that journey already. They were part of our seed round since we never really had a, an angel round, but they've been helping us a lot uh, from their experience growing a, a company of 100 people. Um, and uh, we've therefore implemented a lot of those learnings despite being first time founders from the beginning on. And that was in, in a way really helpful because it helped us not uh, going through a lot of growth pains by having an organization that from the beginning on was structured, even if there was only one person in a certain part of the org mm -hmm. that had a clear goal. So we looked at our customer journey and then looked at what kind of roles and functions and uh, do we need in order to reach those goals. And then uh, we defined this organization as a mission-based organization. So every part of this organization had a, had a mission that defines how it's contributing to the core purpose and to the strategic vision. And with this mission-based organization, this felt like, turned out to be quite a scalable approach because as soon as one area grew, uh, for example, our customer success team, which is today 90 people, uh, we were able to, to just create submissions from the, the overall maximized customer value as their channel vision uh, to a mission to, to go down to the implementation team, having separate vision than this, uh, the service team and the growth team and so on. And okay. therefore, I think that that really helped to create that clarity and also to then define what kind of leader do we need uh, for the different missions and time and then of course uh, yeah, working with the OKRs in order to uh, to yeah, measure those missions on a, on a quarterly basis. And, and this is a, a very good point. Um, 
which is in order to scale it, as you said, it's all about that clarity and about and, and the strat the strategic exercise or, or the strategy job. It's all about um, a, a subtraction exercise. So it's what we need to kill, uh, what complexity do we need to simplify in order to make it easier to scale to the next level, and and sometimes it's it's a kind of a balance of uh, offering new products and uh, and at the same time uh, killing products opening serving new segments and killing segments opening new geos and killing geos so kind of doubling down and killing at the same time it's it's kind of an exercise of opening and closing so how how do do you find focus uh, and how do you assure that you don't get uh, your strategy too much complicated so people don't know uh, where are we who are we trying to solve? What pain points are we trying to, to solve for that customer? And what is our core customer? Yeah, I think for us, uh, we actually never really followed this strategy of opening and closing and, and changing and adapting because I think it's a bit harder also, maybe in our segment, but B2B general to, to be so much back and forth. One, because the uncertainty it creates internally in the organization, but also in regards to, to customers that you might raise certain expectations, then you shut them down again. Uh, so therefore, mm -hmm. we've, we've always tried to uh, preempt that <laughs> through, through good decision making and rather be a bit more narrow on uh, what we mm -hmm. do and, uh, and then expand over time. So for example, with internationalization, we, uh, a lot of people were always asking, you claim to want to become the European category leader. So, uh, but you're mainly focused on the German market and the, or the Dach market, Germany, also Switzerland. Why wouldn't you start already going into other markets? And we always said, it's clear that, that we're going to do it. And by now we have done, I'm going to come to that in a second. But for a really long time is that we need to remain focused because uh, we can't afford uh, adding this complexity at the size of the organization, which we back then were. Now, having grown to a much larger team, having the leaders in place, uh, and then being able to just hire a head of international that drives this international organization, while our VP sales can still focus on the core uh, market that uh, delivers uh, uh, millions of, of uh, added MRR uh, every quarter, mm -hmm. uh, we, we are able to really um, yeah, add this kind of complexity, but then now really also execute on it and, uh, and, uh, and try to do so. So therefore, it was always a question of, how much additional complexity can we afford to take in as the organization? And then uh, whenever we felt we can take in more than, than as the new, new lever. Got it. Cool. And so we discussed people and the way you needed to transform yourself as the company was scaling and how to build your leadership team strategy so how do you drive focus clarity uh, for everyone in the company and also for the market and so it's time to discuss execution uh, it's it's all related to the previous point so having clarity on the strategy having focus and at the same time having the right people on the right seats but what are those rhythms and you just described uh, one of them before which is every single friday so it is an all ends or turn all rhythm that you repeat uh, what is the mission, the vision, the purpose, uh, and the values of the company to the entire organization. So what are some of those meeting rhythms that you have in place that have been more helpful to you to drive execution, to inspire execution, and to have everyone on the same page? Yeah, I think it's, it's really, I mean, as I said, this alignment is constant uh, talking yeah. about it uh, and, and sharing this with the team. And then having um, also, I mean, we have an annual a company OKRs that help us define goals across the entire company and then on a quarterly rhythm each 
team and department works on their OKRs to to match them and make sure that their their goals are aligned and they also on a daily basis one have a lever for prioritization but also have the ability uh, to understand how they they fit into the, the overall picture got it so for, in, in your case it's much more about the uh, okr uh, rhythms that are being important to you to drive execution and inspire execution yeah i think they they are a very important part for us to communicate uh, priorities uh, and also yeah, enable people to to have the, the shared understanding got it and uh, of course we we couldn't conclude a discussion about scaling up without touching cash so because we all know that cash is is really something critical when we are scaling up and there is a lot of pressure and and that that's why we we use VC uh, money to be able to grow quicker, uh, even being scalable, repeatable, and profitable, uh, and and that's why also this VC money money is available because uh, there is a, a clear path in order to have the return on investment and and to win the opportunity in in the market. So what are what were some of your le of the lessons raising your Series B and um, the second part is uh, what do you think that you need to achieve in order to be successful raising um, an eventual Series C? Yeah, so I think um, generally, I mean, our Series B was probably an outlier, but it happens quite often in today's market if you're being successful that you, uh, the round gets preempted. So we were actually not not ready, needing any additional cash. We still were well financed from our Series A and where we're executing uh, well along and then Index Ventures approached us um, and and yeah, made a push and a move towards uh, convincing us to to raise earlier and uh, and get around with them together, which um, was uh, exactly the right thing for us to do at the time because it we could do that very efficiently. We always had good conversation with index ventures in the past and felt that they're a good uh, good fund to get on board. Um, and uh, yeah, it was an efficient way for us to continue to to focus on on building what we needed to build. Um, that said, of course, I mean, something like that might happen again. We can see have some, some outreach of, of investors, but uh, for a Series C, generally, independent from an, in a preemptive process, uh, I think the, uh, the two big things which we've been doing uh, in, the, in the last year since our Series B, and which also the drivers for was raising a successful Series C and, and continuing to go, go uh, growing towards our, um, our goals, is uh, one the internationalization where we started to expand into spain uk nordics and benelux mm -hmm. and uh, we're already seeing quite some traction there and, and adding new customers but uh, proving uh, that we can continue to scale there will be an important one and secondly uh, we've made an acquisition earlier this year with a with a company in, in madrid which now is a big office for us as well uh, called Roblox, with which we now are able to offer a fully automated payroll solution to our customers and uh, proving that um, uh, success, uh, acquisition to be successful, which we're already seeing a lot of signs for, uh, is in the second one, which is, I think, relevant for CUC. But essentially, I think I would never optimize for, I mean, raising money is important, but ideally just optimizing for what's best for the business and what's best for achieving your long-term goals uh, should also help you then uh, be able to raise um, a lot of money what you need along the way got it and some, sometimes there is always this kind of um, guilty feeling in in the head of the ceo and of the founders of are we being too aggressive spending too much cash in a, in a specific stage of growth or are we being too uh, 
amble and and not spending enough, not investing uh, enough in order to move the company forward. So what what is your uh, North Star or your advice for the ones who are with this internal dilemma to understand if if they are being really ambitious or 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 or, or they are not having care, care uh, are not taking care of, of the cash component which is critical for them to scale and this can get them in trouble uh, yeah I think it's a good question I I personally I'm a big proponent of uh, not raising money just because it's available and therefore uh, while we also bootstrap for quite a while and if early stage founders ask me of how can they get their seed round together is I would advise them uh, try to do everything that you don't need a seed round but that you have just customers paying you because that's a much bigger valuation that uh, validation that will help you execute in the business, learn a lot, and then uh, raise money at a, at a better price anyway. Um, so I wouldn't optimize for raising money and then just uh, yeah, having this dilemma of how to spend it. Overall, when I would raise money, and that's independent of any phase, is if additional cash in a different uh, yeah, cash in the bank account allows you to do things differently, and that might be as a initially bootstrap company that you can really accelerate growth, but also at a later stage. It allows you uh, to unlock new opportunities for us. After CSB, we were able to make this acquisition uh, with Roblox, which unlocked a lot of opportunity. Uh, now, with a lot of growth levers in the go-to-market, but also continuing uh, product where we will make big investments and where where we know by adding that uh, that cash, uh, we can can add that um, to, to the to those markets. I think what is important, and especially in the light of some of the recent public failures of IPOs. Um, that we work or also Uber struggling is that mm -hmm. not just growing and spending money for the sake of it with no clear path to profitability, but for us, it was always important that our core business runs well and is really profitable. And we could, could at any point in time with the stable revenues we have become and turn into a profitable company at the same time, seeing uh, if there's a lot of optionalities that can accelerate our growth we were deliberately investing money in things like the payroll in things new in the product but also things like new markets are just moving uh, into spain and selling there and then uh, having these, these things seen as investments and then being really aggressive on, on doubling down on these investments while still uh, not diluting that with your core business uh, where your metrics then might go downhill got it Sounds amazing. Just uh, some final uh, final words before we go to the last question of the show uh, about your learnings uh, with your first acquisition. So this is something that very few founders at this stage have the opportunity to go through. And I think it would be very valuable to, to the audience to, um, to kind of have the do's and don'ts of your experience uh, doing your first acquisition in a, in a SaaS uh, business. Yeah, I mean, this is all very opinionated is my opinion and uh, take it with a grain of salt and might be different for other businesses. But what I would think uh, my learnings are one, um, I'm very happy with the acquisition we took. So, so I would definitely do that again, but I only would do it again for the same reasons why we did it this time. And that's because it enhances our capabilities and we can really bring in a new product advancement. What I would not do at this uh, stage is this kind of P and E, uh, uh, a PE kind of acquisition strategy where you just buy up smaller competitors and try to integrate their customer base because you mm -hmm. want to be a winning product that, that beats competition because you're the better product and people custom switch from there and not because you buy them up and shut down products and pull them across. So that's what I wouldn't do. I would only 
make acquisitions like the one with Rollbox, where it's a synergetic uh, company, a team that fits really well to your team and something that enhances you and just makes you faster on something which you otherwise would, would be doing internally. It's the high level uh, elaboration of an acquisition opportunity. And we actually have elaborated similar opportunities and, and declined to it also since. Um, the second one, do not underestimate the complexity that comes with it. And while I said I would do it again and it was highly beneficial for us, it also was and still is a, a big complexity because we now have two offices where to bring together cultures and despite the teams working well together before as we had a partnership with them and uh, I think also now in all the, like we have a very strong connection with them, it still um, is, is two different cultures and it's still something which we have to continue to work together, especially given that there are two in locations to align and to make sure that it feels like one company and everyone uh, like continues to, to paddle in the same direction and is aligned on, on what we're trying to do. Um, and that's something that's that's more complex that, that you think uh, might be on, on paper. And therefore, yeah, spending a lot of time uh, with the people, bringing people across uh, the office is probably one of the, the key things and the simplest things, but one which you really should, cannot do enough of. That's awesome. And um, and that's our favorite question now. So if you would have the opportunity to meet yourself uh, at the beginning of Personio, what advice uh, would you tell yourself? Um, well, I think that there's, of course, a ton of things which I would uh, be able to, to do different and better and uh, if we were get to start again. Uh, however, I think the biggest advice is where things we, I learned now the importance of, but we were lucky enough to, to randomly get them right. Um, and those are things uh, like when you start a, uh, start a company, you would uh, typically as a, as, a, as a first time founder, as we were, um, not really look as much on uh, things like, is this uh, a business that, uh, that has a, a very relevance in the company? Because you just think, okay, I can, I can buy, sell something to, to people and I can convince people about that. But uh, it's really only now that I understand this, this importance of for us being the system of record for our customers and therefore uh, them being really loyal to our product and, and being really deeply integrated in a lot of processes where if you're just, uh, if you picked even in the same in HR, in SaaS, a different word girl that's much more sort of nice to have and less core of what they use, then you have much more troubles both convincing them to buy but also sticking with your product. And I think that's something which we just randomly got right uh, without knowing uh, that we that we were doing that. Um, and then uh, I guess the, the other thing uh, which which is more something which you could directly apply is the focus on hiring. As soon as you have product market fit and as soon as you have uh, enough cash in the bank account, you're almost certainly going to be behind your hiring plan most of the time. And um, it took us one and a half years or almost two years where every quarter in the board meeting, we're like, luckily we're still hitting our business plan numbers and slightly overachieving even, but, but we're actually, we could be much better even if we uh, had right. more people in product if you had more people and uh, and then we always uh, we of course added another recruiter and then by the time this person was ramped up we were again behind so what we did um, was just say okay recruiting is our biggest priorities we both internally uh, are willing to spend the time on this uh, to get the right kind of people but also we're adding a lot of recruiters and so we by now have 17 uh, full-time people that uh, just help uh, like internally recruit for the company and I, 
I'm not saying that is the exact number for any business, but I think overstaffing on recruiting is an expense that always pays off because in the worst case, uh, you're just having too many good candidates to choose from. And that's always nice. a great situation to be in. So therefore, yeah, I think investing heavily into recruiting teams makes a lot of sense. That's awesome. Uh, Enul, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time and you are invited to come in one year to let us know what, what are really the challenges to go from the free Androids today to the six Android that you are planning. Uh, hopefully with your 14, 17 recruiters, you will get even there even, even faster. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mike. So to our community, thanks for being there. We keep here uh, bringing you the best tech leaders in the world to help you scale from two to 100 million. Thanks for watching.